namaste to all of you and uh, thank you to uh, sangam talks for inviting me today to talk on this uh, very crucial subject this is about my book ritu vidya and uh, some of the practices that i have covered in this book pertaining to menstruation in india so when we talk about menstruation in india it's almost impossible to separate out the culturally centered practices around menstruation be it menstrual seclusion not touching others very specific diet restrictions specific rules about how do you take a bath rules and restrictions on sexual intimacy all of this comes to mind when in india we talk about the subject of menstruation most of the time most of us end up referring to these practices as myths and taboos in fact uh, the title of today's talk is also like that and i let it be because that is how most of us relate to these practices this is the term that comes to our mind we say taboo we say uh, restriction we say stigma when we use this kind of a word which is not we don't have an equivalent of it in our indian languages you know but when we use this word like taboo unknowingly it creates in our mind a mental block towards these practices we unknowingly start to think that there is something wrong about it uh, these practices are meant to suppress women this is the kind of uh, picture that paints in your gets painted in your mind when we refer to them as menstrual taboos so today i want to present to you what i have learned through my ground work across india interacting with adolescent girls and women mainly from rural areas and also what i learned from the indigenous native sciences today's talk will primarily focus on the knowledge gained through ayurveda so what does ayurveda know about these practices what are these practices that are contained in ayurveda text and how do we begin to understand it so let's so let's begin the very first thing that i want to talk about is the practice of celebrating the first period menarki celebration now those of you who are from the southern part of india will be very familiar with this because in all the southern indian states the first period is an event of celebration now i have a lot of friends from regions in india who are not familiar with this and in fact even many of the urban women feel that why do you need to make such an announcement if you go to a village the menarki celebration is not just limited to the immediate family the entire village is invited you know so people take time off from their work just to go to the home of this girl who's menstruating and congratulate her and join in the celebration so a lot of us might think what is the big deal you know isn't it embarrassing why are we announcing it like this fine you teach the girl about hygiene you give her some products but what do you mean by celebration and why is that required the first thing is we are not aware that this practice of menarki celebration is not just about south india there was a time when it was practiced across india 
in some states in northern india even now we see this ritual during the marriage where the girl has to go to her father's house and then come back and go to her husband's house this practice in northern india was called gona and it was part of the marriage celebration so if a girl was married before she attained menarche even though she was married she was not sent to her husband's house she remained in her parents home and then when she attained puberty they celebrated gona and only after that was she sent to her husband's house so with invasions of outsiders people became very wary of announcing their daughters eligibility for marriage because women were kidnapped taken away and all sorts of unpleasant things happened to women and girls in northern india that is why slowly these practices died out but in southern regions of india where we did not have that much of outside exposure we were able to retain much of this now why do we do it you know when i have conversations with um, rural women and adolescent girls in government schools in rural areas when you ask them about menstruation they feel very shy but they always attribute something positive to it they say it's god's gift to women they say this is how we welcome womanhood into our lives they say menstruation is necessary for good health in fact they say almost everything except for menstruation being necessary for childbirth that does not figure in their conversations and instead they attribute all these positive reasonings to it in stark contrast are my conversations with urban women they read my books they listen to my talks and they tell me you know i agree with everything you're saying but i cannot feel positive about it that is something i'm not able to do it you know for us urban women we try to intellectualize it rather than experience it so we intellectually read and try to absorb things but for the rural woman this whole aspect is very experiential i want to give a, a narrate to you a story an incident that one of the women in our groups when we were discussing the attitude towards menstruation one of the wise women she stood up and she, and she shared this experience she said till about the age of 40 years every month she had very severe period pain it was very frustrating very tiring but that's the only way she had experienced menstruation till she reached the age of of about 40 and one of the months when she was in a very crucial painful condition a well wisher another woman walked in on her and asked her what's happening and she said this is so painful and i'm so tired of this pain i don't know what to do about it and that's when the other lady told her your uterus is a gift that you have it's a blessing the moment you realize to be thankful to it and grateful for the gift of menstruation your experience of menstruation itself will change that one moment completely changed something inside her and later she said how 
every morning when she wakes up, she spends about five minutes simply in contemplation, thanking her uterus for the gift of making her a mother twice. And when she was able to make that shift in her attitude towards menstruation, she said she no longer experienced period pain, something that her whole life was such a part of menstruation, just disappeared, just vanished. It might seem like a lot, is this really possible? And how do you explain this scientifically? Now, how is it that our attitude towards menstruation can change our experience of it? So let me first explain this in the language of our modern science, because that is what we are all familiar with. And then I will present to you the perspective from our indigenous sciences as well. Okay, so when we see something or when we are in a particular circumstance, there is a portion of our brain, a small portion, it is called the hippocampus. Its job is to store memory and retrieve it later on. So if you had a pleasant incident, a pleasant memory, around say a particular fragrance, maybe the fragrance of jasmine reminds you of something wonderful that happened. Every time that you get the fragrance of jasmine, your hippocampus throws you that pleasant first memory of it. And consequently, your body goes into this mode of being happy and relaxed. Whatever it was that memory you associated with the first time you smell jasmine. Now the reverse is also possible. Let's say you're passing through a street where unfortunately you had an accident. Months or maybe years later, you go through that same street. This time you did not have an accident, but your memory, it reminds you of that pain that you went through, that feeling of helplessness. And your subconscious body goes into the stress mode, the same stress and fear that you felt at the time of the original incident. We call this episodic memory. So when you see the first menstruation, menarche, why it is celebrated is so that your subsequent memories of it will be one of joy, one of happiness, instead of feeling stressful. Everyone, modern medicine also knows that stress is one of the major causes for menstrual problems, especially irregular menstruation. When I spoke to urban girls, I was surprised that most of them weren't even aware that you need to have your period every month because their period has become so irregular. They bleed maybe four or five times a year and stress has a big role to play in that. So the simple aspect of celebrating menarche, and the celebration is not just for one day, mind you. It goes on for nine days in many communities and in some communities up to 16 days. So 16 days of drilling it down the girl's mind that this is a positive occurrence. Be happy about it. We think you're special because you menstruate. So much of thought and care has gone into coming up with this practice of menarche, of menarche celebration. And those of us who don't know, just dismiss it as something embarrassing. Now, how do you understand this with the lens of indigenous native, our very own sciences? In our Indian systems, 
we refer to all of us having the five koshas, the five sheets. So our existence is not limited to our physical body, which we call the Annamaya Kosha. But we also recognize that there is the Prana body. We call it the Pranamaya Kosha. Then we say that there is the body which is influenced by the mind. We call that Manomaya Kosha. And then we have the Vijnanamaya Kosha and then finally the Anandamaya Kosha. We will not go into the Vijnanamaya Kosha and Anandamaya Kosha for our uh, conversation now. That has more to do with the spiritual path. But let's talk about the other three. And let's try to understand how the way you think about your period can actually translate into a problem in your physical body. When we have negative thoughts, embarrassing thoughts, stressful thoughts, it reflects in our mind. Our mind is the starting point where the problems begin. So we call that the Manomaya Kosha. And when your mind is not able to discriminate, that is not able to apply Vijnanam and not able to prevent yourself from getting stressed, your Manomaya Kosha gets disturbed. Once your Manomaya Kosha is disturbed, it translates into your breathing patterns. Just observe the way you breathe when you are relaxed, the way you breathe when you are stressed out, the way you breathe when you're excited or too happy. You know that your breathing patterns are different with each of these emotions. Now, prana is one of the components of breath. Breath contains prana. Prana is not breath alone, but breath contains prana. So when your breathing patterns change, your pranamaya kosha gets affected. When your pranamaya kosha is affected, it in turn impacts your physical body, that is your annamaya kosha. So something that began in the mind percolates through the layers and finally touches your physical body. And once it reaches the annamaya kosha, then treatment is what is needed because it has mostly translated into disease as a disease form. If you are able to practice dhyanam on a daily basis and your mind is able to be free of chatter and you may not be able to control your circumstances, but if you are condition your mind in such a way that you're able to respond to it in a manner that does not impact you negatively, then your Manumaya Kosha will slowly start coming under your control. If you practice Pranayama on a regular basis, even the small difficulties that happen because of your stress and therefore change in breathing patterns will be set right when you do Pranayama. If you have not done either of this, Finally, it translates into disease and that's when you need treatment. See, these correlations of the mind, of the prana and your physical body was very well understood in our indigenous sciences. And all the practices that emerged from it took these things into consideration. Now, as children, 
many of us may not have had a choice about our circumstances. I'm sure we've all had embarrassing incidents around menstruation. Some of us may have had painful memories associated with it. But as adults, we need to work to change those memories, find ways to replace those memories with positive memories because it has a direct impact on the way you experience menstruation itself. If you feel that some people in your life have not been kind to you at the time of your first period or subsequently, find ways to go over that. Find ways to forgive them and move on. You know, there is this uh, Ayurveda practitioner and a spiritual leader named Maya Tiwari. She's written a beautiful book on uh, menstruation. In that book, she mentions how women who have troubled relationships with their mother often experience difficulty in menstruation. So one of the first things that we need to do to ease that difficulty is to repair that relationship with your mother. Because you, have, you share the same cells as your mother. And for women, that connection between their period and their mother's period is very, very close. I've had women who tell me every time they menstruate, I mean, we have a group and we report to each other just to see how many of us are bleeding together. So in this group, there are mothers who tell me that when their daughter got their period, their first period, on that same day, the mother also got her period. So when the mother and child's relationship is that beautiful and that close, you actually very naturally bleed in sync. And if that relationship is disturbed, or for whatever reason, you're not able to forgive your mother or go beyond that, it will translate as painful periods. So bear this in mind. This is the first thing that we all need to know, that our attitude towards menstruation plays a big role. Now, let me talk about the next most common aspect of uh, just a moment. Sorry, uh, let me talk about the next most common um, conversation that we have when we talk about menstruation. So when I do sessions for uh, young girls, I ask them, how many of you think that menstrual blood is impure? And 98% uh, of the class, the hands go up. In Canada, they say, Ketaratta. that literally means bad blood. The women also think the same. They also say the same thing. So then I ask them, why do you say it? Why do you consider menstrual blood as bad blood or impure blood? And then they say, uh, no, Akka, there are toxins in the body. And uh, it is when we menstruate that this toxin blood becomes bad. So then I ask them, what about boys? Don't they have these toxins or do they get to keep these toxins? So what happens to the bad blood in men? So that's when they start scratching their heads and thinking about it. All these conversations that we have, they need to make us curious to dig deeper. We should ask questions to ourselves. If you find one answer and there are 10 questions around it, that means you haven't found the right answer and you need to keep looking. So how do we understand this aspect of why so often 
women are told and we ourselves tell women that menstruation makes you impure what is this impurity that they talk about what are these toxins the so called that are released during menstruation to understand this we need to understand ayurveda's concept of ama ama refers to toxins that are created within your body these are not chemical substances that you ingest as pollutants or synthetic material not just that one of the texts uh, the ashtanga hridayam text of vagbatam talks about how ama is created in the body so he specifies three methods one is when you have food that is incompatible for example you had a very sour orange and you immediately after that or with that you had milk so milk and sour food don't go hand in hand they are incompatible so when you have incompatible food it creates ama the second is when you eat in excess and this is something we all know we overeat and when you overeat your digestive system is not able to work to its capacity a lot of the food gets undigested the undigested food sits in the intestines and rots and this process of rotting is what produces ama and the third method is having food that causes indigestion you know i once uh, spoke to this adolescent girl whose boyfriend listened to one of my talks and told me ma'am please speak to her she gets a lot of stomach cramps and i called her up and i asked her what do you eat and uh, she stayed in a hostel and she was a college going student and her diet at night her dinner basically every night was at 10 or 10:30 pm potato chips and coke potato chips and coke every night for dinner and she's like why am i having menstrual cramps <laughs> right so if our diet is consisting mainly of food that we are not able to digest and we all know what is unhealthy i don't need to list it out then it will create ama it will create toxins that your body will be struggling to flush out ayurveda understands ama as the primary reason for a host of diseases and that is why treatment in ayurveda often begins by fixing your digestive mechanism by helping your bowel movements clearing out your intestines that ama is cleared out okay? and in in the same text which talk about ama they talk about what do you do if your body has ama so if the ama amount of ama is not much they recommend langana fasting so you see our ekadashi and all those rituals all those festivals that come with fasting it is meant to flush out this ama if the amount of ama is in a moderate amount moderate quantity then langana alone won't suffice you need langana plus some of the digestive drugs and you'll need an ayurveda physician to recommend them for you if it has gone to a stage where there's so much of ama accumulated in your system then you need to eliminate it via therapy and that is what we call as the panchakarma therapy the five methods of eliminating this so in panchakarma basically they give you treatment so that you can evacuate your bowels completely uh, your upper digestive tract is cleared by making you vomit out all the the ama that is collected there 
you do nasya so that all the congestion in your sinus areas is also comes comes out so like this there are five methods through which the ama is expelled expelled from the body panchakarma becomes necessary when the accumulation of amas to an extent that it has begun to affect our reproductive health because the food that we consume the essence of that is what goes into forming what ayurveda calls the dhatus so it starts with the rasa dhatu then you have the rakta dhatu then majja mamsa and so on and the final the seventh tissue layer is the shukra dhatu which has to do with the semen in men and the ovum in women so if the food that you are eating is not helping you and if it is creating more of ama then your shukra dhatu is affected to an extent that it causes infertility which is why the treatment for infertility with ayurveda will recommend usually include panchakarma therapy also because once your system is cleansed of all of this then your chances of fertility improves now what does all this have to do with menstruation right so if you observe what your body is put through when there's panchakarma a similar effect is what happens to menstruating girls and women during menstruation if they have excess ama so the discomfort that you feel many women will experience vomiting every period that is one way in which it is clearing the ama some girls experience loose bowel movements during menstruation that is another way in which it is clearing the severe cramps that girls experience the gastric problems that they experience is your body struggling to clear out this gastric problem issues that have happened because of eczema for many of us it shows in our skin with acne and uh, what we call pimples the skin breaking out that is also one way in which amas trying to get out many women experience headaches due to sinus problems so when girls and women go through these we curse the period we think oh my god because of this period i'm in this pain we don't realize that it is this period this very thing that we are cursing that is struggling to keep you healthy by pushing out the accumulated ama in your system you can make it easier for your period to do so by regulating your diet what happens when ama is not cleared out on a month on month basis is that it results in reproductive health issues and every month you are pretty much getting a free panchakarma therapy a free detox <laughs> that we never appreciate we only criticize and curse why is this feature there only for women and not for men and what happens to men in the absence of it women have this ability to cleanse out that system every month no matter how much they mess it up it will create problems and pain but will cleanse it out so that your womb is prepared to create life life cannot be born in a system that is full of ama that is full of internal toxins and to facilitate that process for you we have this natural mechanism of menstruation natural detox that nature gives us free of cost every month now when i when men understand this 
in the beginning they are like they've come to the top to you know try and see how to help women and all of that but by the time they hear this they end up feeling jealous that this is not fair <laughs> why don't we men have such a mechanism and for men to have the equivalent cleansing of menstruation they need to do a lot of sadhana they have to be very regular in their exercise they have to be very careful about their diet reason why there is more incidence of heart attacks of cholesterol problems of high blood pressure of diabetes among men is because they don't menstruate if you see the average age of men and women in any nation i will tell you the numbers for india in india on average men live up to the age of 67 68 and women up to the age of 71 and the primary cause for it is that women have this natural gift of menstruation which men don't right so the more you can ease the process of menstruation the easier it will be for your system to do that i have worked with a lot of young women and girls who by making a simple shift that is a week before your period avoid things that are hard to digest avoid non vegetarian food avoid caffeine avoid alcohol and smoking if that's something you do avoid fried food avoid tubers avoid things that you know will affect and will not digest very well or give you indigestion avoid these things for a week before your period and during your period along with that if you practice yoga pranayama and dhyana on a daily basis you will see a marked improvement in the way you experience your period i have seen girls who their whole life had not known a period without vomiting and without being in pain and these simple methods brought about such a change in the way they experienced it that they and their families were taken aback but don't take this as medical advice because i do not know at what stage your body is and how much damage has already happened so if you are someone who is suffering from a lot of menstrual cramps and difficulties along with what i have said do consult an ayurveda physician who will be able to do your nadi pariksha and recommend a certain course of lifestyle and diet that will be suitable for you but make yoga pranayama meditation and the correct food choices a part of your daily life and it's it's almost a prerequisite if you have to experience period that is free from pain and i want to tell you it's possible uh, many girls unfortunately think that it's normal to have cramps and mood swings and pains it's not normal ayurveda does not think so and ayurveda tells you how you can avoid having those problems <clears throat> so this is a very basic introduction that i have given you in the next part of this presentation i want to dive a little more in depth uh, into the practices prescribed in ayurveda we call this taboo ayurveda calls it rajaswala paricharya which simply means menstrual regime not taboo not stigma not even rules a regime a regime means a set of do's and don'ts that you follow for a certain condition if you're not well and you go to a doctor they give you a set of rules isn't it in a similar manner 
when you are menstruating, there is a certain regime to be followed. So let's take a look at what this is and why they play a role and how they prevent menstrual disorders. Just to make it a little more interesting for all of you, I have added images of my team and me during our field work in Karnataka. So sometime in 2016, up, up until then, I had done my homework by studying about 150 existing research papers on menstrual health. And no matter how much I searched, I could not find evidence that Indian women have severe menstrual problems. All the studies that I looked up showed that among Indian women, the prevalence of menstrual disorders, when I say menstrual disorders, I mean menorrhagia, heavy menstrual bleeding, amenorrhea, delayed or missed periods, dysmenorrhea, period pain, all of these in any given population was around 15 to 20% only. And when I looked at similar studies of women in the West, I was very surprised that the numbers were always above 40%. In England, 52% women had heavy menstrual bleeding. Uh, they did a study of adolescent girls across Australia and found that 94% of the girls experienced dysmenorrhea or period pain. And that was the number one reason why they were missing school. So when I heard these figures, it was so different from the stuff that we are fed through media and these NGOs that I felt, no, uh, this may be a study, but I need to know it firsthand too. And that's when my team and I, we decided to do a thorough field work of pre-screening women across about 50 villages spread across four districts in Karnataka. We went to their homes, we went to their fields, we chatted with them. The interviews were anywhere between 45 minutes to one hour. It was a 72-pointer interview. And when we pre-screened them, if we identified women who had menstrual issues or were anemic, we took the help of the health workers and referred them to the nearest uh, medical uh, center. We did this in association with the, the, the government of Karnataka and with their permission and with the support of the health workers. So I'm going to take you through that. Uh, that field work helped me understand a lot of the theory contained in these books and find answers to more many of these things. That is why I've included the photos from this. This is my team. So there's Vaijayanti Ji, Shravanti, Neetu, and of course me, and this was one the photo taken in Raichur, in the district Raichur of Karnataka. So what does Ayurveda mean when they say Rajaswala Paricharya? What are the practices that are included? Let's read what is written. And this is written in the text Sushruta Samhita. Okay, so let's see what it, 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 what it says. It says, when women are menstruating, you must avoid excessive talking, excessive laughter, exposure to loud noise, avoid crying, do not sleep during the day, avoid combing your hair and cutting your nails, avoid applying collyrium. Collyrium is kajal. Avoid applying kajal to the eyes. Do not take a bath. Do not do an oil massage. And do not anoint your body with sandalwood paste and other things that were done traditionally. Avoid fatiguing work. Avoid food that is spicy or sour. And avoid sexual intercourse during menstruation. Now the section of uh, Sushita Samhita, which mentions all these, does not give you reasons. 
it is understood that you know the fundamentals of ayurveda that you know the fundamentals of so you can understand it now before i decode this i want to tell you this 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 core difference between ayurveda and what we call allopathy or western medicine ayurveda understood the gross physical anatomy which it calls the stula sharira very well in fact sushruta samhita is a textbook of indian surgery rishi sushruta was a surgeon so he did understand surgery he practiced and he taught surgery but ayurveda also understood and explained and based its treatment on the knowledge of the subtle anatomy which it calls the sukshma sharira so while modern medicine is all about the stula sharira that which you can see and touch and cut open ayurveda also included knowledge of the sukshma sharira the subtle anatomy which you cannot perceive with your senses and all of these practices the knowledge contained therein if you must understand it you must understand what did ayurveda know about the sukshma sharira at first glance i am sure many of you will be thinking that these practices are very unreasonable what do you mean don't take a bath what do you mean don't comb your hair isn't it what do you mean don't even laugh and talk too much <laughs> i know and that's how it sounds and when i hear people trying to interpret these practices and i mean people who are considered as well versed in indigenous sciences they are very selective they pick one or two things which they can explain with ayurveda and the rest even beats them so they either completely ignore it or they attribute very simple reasons for example they say you shouldn't apply kajal and henna because you have to it's like a tapas it's like a sadhana you have to be very meditative and should not decorate yourself so we try and attach these kind of oversimplified reasoning to it i want you to know that when we are trying to interpret the vedas the shastras or texts that are derived from it if there is something which we are not able to relate to it is not because it is irrelevant for our times it is because our understanding is limited there are no contradictions in the vedas if something appears contradictory it is a lack of our understanding the vedas does not contain matter that you and i can understand over a cup of tea and some casual discussion if that were the case it wouldn't be considered as a sacred text it is considered as a sacred text every line of it is considered as so important because it reveals to you something that is eternal for all times for all yugas these things apply once you understand this then those practices which are not able to understand you must start contemplating on it and once you've cracked those you understood so much more than one or two things together i did not decode these practices in a matter of months or even now one or two years this is a decades work of restlessly trying to figure out why are indian women told to do these things a decade 10 years there were many days and nights that i just 
could not sleep wondering but why the kajal what is the kajal do to women you have to spend that much time in contemplation for this knowledge to show itself and that too you have to have certain blessings of gurus and the devatas for it to come to you so what i'm about and i i did not write this book until and unless i was having the answers to all of these it was not enough that i can explain one or two i wanted to be able to explain all of these before i wrote a book so it took time but i would like to run you through these practices and help you understand and decode many more of these so when we begin talking about ayurved the basis of it is the knowledge of the sukshma sharira which is understood in ayurveda as the three doshas chas which literally means the three doshas what are these three doshas we call them the vata dosha the pitta dosha and the kapha dosha sometimes those who are more familiar with hindi say vat pit and kaf in south india we like adding an r so we say vata pitta and kapha and ayurveda <laughs> okay so that does not make this wrong because i've had people correcting me say it's not ayurveda it's ayurveda <laughs> it's just a matter of how you speak and where you're from so vat pit and kaf are the three doshas and they regulate all the functions within the body now to understand what they are we need to understand the words itself vat is derived from the root va which means to move or to smell so vat vat dosh is responsible for all the movements in your body pitta is derived from tapa which means the heat or the burning sensation and pitta is the internal heat in your body responsible for all transformative processes and kapha which is also called as shleshma now that refers to the quality of embracing of cohesiveness and it is kapha that binds the cells and all the structures and the tissues within the system so these three doshas now they occur in different quantities and qualities within each of us and accordingly ayurveda gives all of us our own individual body constitution which it calls prakriti so all of us are combinations of one or more doshas we could be vata pitta type pitta kapha type vata kapha type very few will be all three are equally balanced now in the following slides i would like to explain to you can we just go back to the previous one for just another second thank you so i would like to explain to you i would like to exaggerate it and thereby simplify it and explain how if you have a vata predominant personality what it is like if you have a pitta predominance what that's like and if you have a kapha predominance for most of us like i said we are a combination of one or two but in some cases for example me and my teammates uh the girl to the left uh, who under whom i written vata her name is shravanti murli and she has a vata dominant personality i have a pitta dominant prakriti and my friend neetu to the right has a kapha dominant prakriti and we know this because we did our nadi pariksha through uh, 
Ayurveda physician, Dr. Ramya, who's mentioned in my book. And uh, with her knowledge, we understood a lot of this. Why I'm saying this is because predominance of one or more of the doshas affects not just your personality, but also the way in which you bleed. And accordingly, you can observe the status of your health every time you observe your period. And that is what I will tell you in the next few slides. So let's take a closer look at Vata Dosha. Now, Ayurveda describes certain gunas, certain qualities about Vata Dosha. There are a number of them, but the one, the primary one, which we should remember is of Shita, of coolness or of coldness. So winter has a predominance of Vata Dosha. Those who have a predominance of Vata will experience those effects of Vata, which is coldness, roughness, a certain lightness, and movement. Vata is all about movement. So people who have a predominance of Vata Dosha will be restless people who always want to be moving. Even their speech will be extremely paced, extremely fast. They cannot sit still. They will be tapping something, doing something with their hands. Their legs are moving. There's always that element of restless movement in those who are having excess of vata. Instability and restlessness. Those are all qualities of vata. When vata is in a balanced state, this very thing of restlessness, of movement, will translate into creativity, intuition, a love for travel, Vata-dominant people are extremely hardworking people. They don't take shortcuts. They're not lazy. So all of these qualities we can start observing in people who may have Vata-dominant Prakriti. Now, Vata is the primary nerve force within the body. So your nervous system and everything to do with it is influenced by Vata. So if you are feeling stressed, it will directly affect your vata dosha. During menstruation, vata dosha is naturally in a higher state because vata has to do with movement. So movement of the hormones that trigger menstruation, movement of the menstrual blood itself is regulated by vata dosha. So vata is in a little more higher than usual state. Okay, So any kind of stress, will affect the nervous system and in turn will affect vata, which in turn will affect your period. Vata organizes all the movements in your body, as I said. It influences your bone and your skeletal system. And I will come to that in a bit, why it's so important. When you are in a condition where vata dosha is naturally high, like menstruation, your bones are very brittle. The natural density of it is reduced. And what this means is that the chances of injuring yourself, of having bone-related injuries, are high during menstruation. Vata affects your sensory organs. Now, if you observe closely during periods of menstruation, your ability to assess distances. If you are driving a vehicle, you will break too late because your ability to assess that distance, your sense organs are working at a slower pace. I've seen this in many sports women who are excellent at other times, but suddenly on some days, they can't even connect the ball to the racket. That hand-eye coordination is suddenly weakened. 
This is one of the characteristics of vata dosha. When vata is high, like the time when you menstruate, your sensory organs are not working at its best. Okay? Vata influences your endocrine system. That's basically all your hormones. So your entire triggering of menstruation, when it starts, how the hormones flow, all of it is governed by vata. It is the most crucial dosha if we are to talk about reproductive and menstrual health issues. And almost all problems associated with menstruation start with an impaired vata dosha. So now we'll take a look at how women who are predominantly having a vata prakriti, how should their period be? And if it changes from vata prakriti to vata prakopa, prakopa refers to an aggravated state of vata, a state where vata is not in balance, then how their quality of their period changes. You know, rural women refer to menstruation crucial for the overall health because they know how to decode these things in menstruation. They observe the color of the blood. They observe the, the way in which the flow happens, the texture of it, your physical state, your emotional state. All these are giveaways to understanding the overall health. So let's take a look at how normal bleeding will be for a woman who's having a vata prakriti and not having any disease condition. This is something modern medicine has just not been able to tell us. Why do different women bleed differently? Our bleeding patterns are not the same. Even the color of the blood is different for so many of us. In fact, it might even vary on a month-on-month -month basis based on whether on that particular month your one of the doshas are triggered. And Ayurveda can give you that important answer. So if you are a Fubata Prakriti woman, the color of the menstrual blood will be slightly darker. It's not your usual bright light, it's slightly darker. But if you have a condition where Vata is really aggravated, that dark color will be almost dark brownish. It's dark brownish in color. And if there are months where you say you have traveled excessively just before your period or during your period, if there are months where you eat something very cold, now this happened to me once, my period started, I didn't know, and I was eating an ice cream and I was enjoying it and wanted to finish it. And subsequent to eating the ice cream, I realized I got my period and the blood was dark brown. So even though I am of a Pitta Prakriti, if you do certain things that aggravates your Vata during menstruation, you will observe that the color of the blood itself will change. It will become brownish in color. Vata Prakriti women have menstrual flow, which is slightly on the lesser side, around two to four days. That's how it normally is. But if you have a problematic period and if you're of the vata type, then that flow becomes even lesser. It becomes scanty menstruation, uh, irregular menstruation. You end up missing your period or you have just spots. So these are indications that vata is not in balance. Physical discomfort. If you have a normal vata prakriti and it's well balanced and if you're healthy, you should not have any physical discomfort. But most of the time, young girls will experience constipation, severe menstrual cramps, all the lower abdomen aches, the aches in your, in your calves, in your thigh, all of this is attributed to an excessive vata. Emotionally, you should not have any problems if you are in a balanced state, but otherwise, 
Vata disturbance will manifest as this feeling of extreme anxiety. So I've met young girls who tell me that they fear the date of the period. They're so nervous that I'm going to get my period in one or two days. They feel very restless, anxious, and fearful about it. They also experience a lot of mood swings. That is the instable nature of Vata. So these, if you are experiencing these things, you should know it's an indication that, okay, you need to do something to bring the Vata back in balance. Now, with this much knowledge alone, we can decode many of the menstrual practices prescribed in Rajaswala Paricharya. Excessive talking, like what I'm doing. <laughs> now, when you talk continuously for long periods of time, you feel lightheaded. Similarly, when you laugh too much and too loudly and continuously, or this continuous loud noise that you're exposed to, all these things shake up and disturb your nervous system, which in turn affects your vata dosha. And that is why these things are told to be avoided during menstruation when naturally vata is predominant. Similar with crying. Now, sleeping during the day, they generally recommend this if you have had a long journey and you know when you travel, it really shakes up and disturbs your vata. So if you've had a long journey, they recommend that you sleep. But during men to, to balance the vata, but during menstruation, vata is supposed to be at a certain increased state. So sleep will impact that and influence that. So that is why it is recommended not to sleep. Similarly, massages or, uh, you know, anointing your body with oils. If you see the earlier uh, martial art, people who are into martial arts, the Kalri Paitu and the Kushti, their body was well oiled before they started the sport, right? So one of the things is that when you are exercising heavily, it aggravates the Vata Dosha. But when you have massaged your body well and lubricated it, then you will reduce the chances of injury which happens if the bones become brittle and vata is high. The entire concept of avoiding heavy exercise, fatiguing work has to do with preventing aggravation of vata during menstruation. And I will tell you something very important about that in the next slide. But before that, what about combing the hair? I mean, this one, <laughs> I really broke my head to understand. What does hair, combing the hair have to do with this, right? So, your hair, your nails, your bones, all of these are influenced by vata. I want you to pay attention to the next time when you menstruate and observe the texture of your hair. It will be rougher than usual. It will be more brittle than usual. When you comb your hair, more of it will fall <laughs> if you're combing during menstruation because when your vata is in an aggravated state, it causes hair fall. It affects your bones, your hair, as well as your nails. And that is why these things are also to be avoided during menstruation. And obviously, sexual intercourse is something that really aggravates your entire nervous system and has a very painful impact on Vata Dosha. And that is why it is told not to have sexual intercourse or any, any such activity during menstruation. But interestingly, the restrictions on sexual intercourse, when they are instructed to men, it is amplified. 
So Sushita Samhita tells men and warns them of not to have sexual intercourse with women in their period by telling them that your lifespan itself will be cut short if you did that. Your eyesight will be reduced. Your entire vital strength will be lowered if you have intercourse with a menstruating woman. So the, the, here the restriction is not for the woman. It is very strictly for the man. It is considered as a sin if he does it to drive home the point. Why is that? So here we have to understand a little bit about something else that happens beyond the vata aggravation during menstruation. So during menstruation, women tend to lose the egg. The human egg, whether it is the human seed, whether it is in the form of the egg in menstrual blood or in the form of the sperm in the semen, the human seed contains copious amounts of prana. And when we lose prana, the body tends to absorb it from the surroundings. When women are menstruating, we are continuously losing prana. And that is why we feel so exhausted. So when you come close to another human being, just close to another, you will tend to absorb their prana as well. Now, men tend to lose prana when they lose the semen. Now, that condition is compounded when you have sexual intercourse with a woman who is anyway trying to take up more and more of your prana, plus you are losing it through the semen. And that is why it results in what Ayurveda sees, a shorter lifespan, loss of vitality, and so many problems for men. So when I, when I give this comparison, some intelligent men ask me, so if loss of prana happens through loss of semen, shouldn't all these restrictions hold good for men? <laughs> See, Charaka coined this very nice word, for understanding uh, Indian practices. And he said that one of the pramanas, proofs of knowledge, is yukti. Yukti means common sense, rationale. How can you compare menstruation with loss of semen? Menstruation is an involuntary process that goes on for five to seven days. Women have no control over it. So the way to regulate it is through all these practices, through the Rajaswala Paricharya. Whereas loss of semen is a voluntary process and it does not go continuously day and night for, you know, many days together. So for men, the equivalent of that, if they have to participate in a spiritual path is celibacy. Celibacy, preventing the loss of prana through the loss of semen. Okay, so that is how you have to understand it. The rules apply to women because it is an involuntary process of loss of blood for X number of days. But for men, it's a voluntary process, the control of which is within them. And that is why celibacy and brahmacharya is prescribed for men on the spiritual path. Okay? So this gives some idea of vata dosha, the primary dosha to be understood if you have to understand many of the menstrual practices associated with uh, tradition. In the next slide, so in this next slide, this is a classic example that I want to tell you and I want you to reflect on this. If you think of any modern day sportswoman, you think of uh, any popular modern day sportswoman and think of her prime. She reaches her prime at the age of around 35, 
maximum she stretches to 40 and then her body is riddled with so many injuries that she cannot at all perform right but look at this woman here meenakshi gurukul she is a kalari pai to master at the time of this photo she was 74 years old how is it that this woman at the age of 74 is able to have the stamina and energy of a modern day sportswoman at the age of 20 what is she doing differently think of all the bharatanatyam dancers think of dr sonal mansingh think of all of them they perform well into their 70s and 80s can you think of a modern day sportswoman who can do that in her 40s forget 70s and 80s in her 40s what happens they have difficulty with menstruation they have severe injuries many of them struggle with labor and birthing and even conceiving primary difference in the way traditionally we taught women to deal with physically you know exhaustive processes was simply this one rule during your period you do not train you do not practice you do not perform you take rest because during your period if you do excessive training your bones being brittle will be susceptible to injury this fundamental thing has greatly prolonged the longevity of performance of women in traditional martial arts and dancing and this knowledge can do so much for women in modern sports there is an entire chapter on sports and how women in sports can deal with their bodies and work in sync with it in this book and i would recommend anyone who's into excessive physical exercise as a woman to go through that and see what you can take from it now let's come to pitta dosha my own uh, dominant prakriti from the very post you can tell that that's a bit of a dominating person there <laughs> there's no pushover <laughs> so the primary quality of pitta is agni the element of agni of fire of ushna of heat if uh, vata is of coolness then pitta is of heat okay so various qualities are there for it but the main thing the, the purpose of this pitta of this agni in our body is that it enables all transformative processes digestion metabolism ovulation even the ability to think and comprehend the way i am doing it is thanks to my predominance of pitta dosha okay so pitta plays a great uh, role not just in digestion of food but in digestion of thought itself so pitta prakriti is that which causes that transformation pitta dosha causes that internal transformation the primary seat of pitta is liver and the spleen so people who have irregular pitta the pitta has gone haywire it will first show in a problem in your liver the liver weakens digestion weakens your skin breaks out into acne all of these conditions will come to the fore and one of the main ways in which i know that my pitta has gone out of order is an expression of intense and extreme anger so short temper and anger people who are extremely angry that is a classic case of pitta going highly aggravated and uh, that's one of the ways in which you can know how you are doing so just before your period 
some women will experience this intense anger so that is an indication that hey your pitta is not going right and you need to do something about it okay so let's go to the next slide where similar to vata dosha we will look at pitta prakriti and pitta prakopa how that uh, manifests okay so if you have a normal pitta prakriti so vata the color is slightly darkish but in pitta it would be a bright red color in pitta prakopa also the color of the blood will be beautifully bright red now the way in which the flow is it is slightly more than the average flow it's around 3 to 5 days normally for pitta prakriti women when you are in a state of pitta prakopa that can cause heavy menstrual bleeding bleeding a lot bleeding continuously for a week or more menorrhagia or heavy menstrual bleeding is characteristic of pitta it is a cause due to pitta prakopa okay uh typically you should not have any physical discomfort but if you are having a pitta prakopa it will show in inflammation in the body it will show in acne some women may have loose bowel movements so these kind of features can occur emotionally the most obvious thing as i said before is temper extreme short temper and fatigue you shout you went out and you get tired <laughs> so this is something that frequently happens to uh, pitta dominant women now this practice of if you look at the rajaswala paricharya practices for pitta to prevent pitta domination aggravation the main thing of not applying kajal to the eyes today we know kajal as a cosmetic but it was not always like that it was a medicinal thing which was applied to the inner eyelids to reduce pitta so one of the subtypes of pitta dosha called alochaka pitta that regulates your sight your vision and when you apply kajal to your eyes it reduces and brings that down but during menstruation along with vata even pitta dosha is at a slightly elevated state because pitta features in your blood itself so anything to do with the blood has to do with pitta so this naturally elevated state of pitta is required for you when you menstruate and that is why you don't do things to bring down the pitta that is why you don't apply kajal you don't apply henna henna as most of you know whether applied to the hands or to your hair is highly cooling it cools your body by reducing the pitta so that is why it is not recommended during menstruation and it is not about a cosmetic thing okay uh the main thing of not taking a bath now uh, the, an excellent way of understanding pitta and how that is brought to balance traditionally is to see the practices in uh, kerala now in kerala if you go and you're always served water which is slightly warm and which has cumin seeds jeera in it because that is excellent for reducing and balancing the pitta in that high temperature okay uh kerala women oil their hair is literally coconut oil dripping from their hair why that coconut oil keeps that pitta in control so in kerala there is this saying about one who you know this thing about not taking a bath it's not just about during menstruation soon after you've had a meal it is never recommended to take a bath uh, many of us traditionally know this so in kerala there's also a saying around it that kalichodne kulichavane kanda kulikanam which means if you even see a person who has had bath just after a meal you should take a bath because that's how dirty he is 
Now, this is discrimination, if you ask me, that you are discriminating based on who has taken bath when. If you fight in terms of equality, you should say, come on, don't I have the right to take bath when I want? Why are we fussing so much about when to take a bath? As soon as you've had a meal, the food in your stomach starts to cook, thanks to the agni, thanks to pitta. So pitta is just rising to digest your food. And at that time, if you pour water over yourself, it's like pouring water into a cooking pot, which is just only half cooked. It is a classic case of creating ama because the food will not be digested completely. And that is why that fellow is so full of ama, so dirty and impure, that just his sight should make you want to take a bath. <laughs> okay, so this whole practice of not taking a bath has to do with the pitta being high during menstruation and needing to be maintained at that level. Now, of course, our Hindu sisters could not bear this idea of not taking a bath for three or four or five days. So they modified the practice. What do they do? The minute you start your period, you run and go and take a head bath. <laughs> and then the rest of the days, you just lightly wash, wash your body. And on the final day, you again take a head bath. But this thing of take a head bath on day one and then body bath and then the head bath again on fifth day, it's so confusing and it has become almost like a superstition. It is the first question asked by most women as to why are there so many rules around taking bath and how do we make sense of it, right? So Ayurveda keeps it very simple. It does not permit a bath at all. If you have to keep your doshas functioning as it should during menstruation, then the ideal thing is to avoid coming in touch with water altogether. Again, avoiding uh, sour food, avoiding spicy food, anything that creates heat within the body, like the papaya food. You are not supposed to have papaya during menstruation. At one, one day, I forgot about this, and I had a lot of papaya, <laughs> and I had intense burning sensation for the entire duration of my period. So you see, knowingly, unknowingly, I have experimented and experienced a lot of these things. And that's why I know that when your grandmother says, don't eat this or don't eat that, there is a reason to it. And it can be explained and understood through Ayurveda. So I think we're kind of running short of time also to take questions, but I will quickly go over the next few slides. So all of this is covered in much greater detail in my book. Uh, so very quickly about this example. So one of the villages that I went to, the health worker told me that there's something strange that happens here. A lot of the women in this village reached menopause in their 30s. This was the previous generation of women and the health workers had no idea why it's happening. So as part of the interview process, when I visited their homes, this is what I saw. Now, these are traditional silkworm rarers. Now, normally silkworm rearing is a separate building. They have a separate building for silkworm rearing and women during menstruation are not allowed. The typical reason told to you is that if a, a menstruating woman comes into the rearing room, the, the worms will die. Okay, the, the worms that are just coming out of the cocoon are very sensitive to heat. And the presence of the menstruating woman will cause them to die. And villagers have obviously seen this happen, which is why the rule exists. But the reverse is also true. Like in this case, they were so poor that they could not have a separate rearing facility. So you see these vertical baskets. They had these baskets inside the house where the worms were kept. 
the woman the woman fed these worms herself she slept next to it and because it was inside the house even when she menstruated she was around these worms and this would have repeatedly happened once i met a folk healer and i asked him about this practice why are why is there so many rules about silkworm rearing in menstruating women he said because the worm affects the pitta in a menstruating woman it aggravates their pitta and pitta and vata are so closely connected if one goes out of balance it pulls the other one also out of balance so for these women for long periods of time their pitta would have been continuously aggravated because of being in close contact with the silkworm and eventually that would have manifested into an early menopause itself okay so all these practices exist for a reason before you dismiss any of it be very sure you know what you're talking about because you could be putting women's lives at risk when you tell them that there's nothing in it so very quickly kapha dosha so kapha is the quality of uh, cooling of sweetness of viscosity of strength so on one hand the vata dominant people will have this restless personality pitta dominant people will have this crazy temper but the kapha dominant people like my friend neeti they have a very steady very friendly very calm personality because that is the nature of kapha kapha contains the elements of water and earth so coolness and heaviness is its quality with it comes some amount of laziness also <laughs> because the weight of kapha is such that it makes you not want to do things you don't have the agni forcing you to do things nor the vayu which is making you move so you're very happy and content and a, a nice person to be around <laughs> so qualities of kapha it largely maintains the structure and the stability of cells during menstruation it provides the fluid base it is responsible for hydrating your intestinal cells and for lubricating and protecting all your tissues one of the ways in which you know kapha is in excess is when you start having a lot of phlegm you have a lot of releasing a lot of phlegm that is when you know that kapha is in excess so again with kapha there is the normal prakriti and there is the prakopa uh if vata was darkish in color pitta was bright in color kapha is light in color it's not a very bright red it is more towards a lighter side and if you have a kapha prakopa it's almost it's even more lighter in color kapha prakriti is most of mostly a moderate flow of 5 to 7 days but if you have a problem that flow will be likely accompanied by clots and it becomes very thick and slimy in texture physical discomfort even normally you will feel slightly heavy and emotionally you will feel lazy but if you are in a prakopa state of kapha then all of this becomes enhanced you experience nausea vomiting your laziness becomes depression and this feeling of very very this dull ache this feeling of no one loves me and this worried sad feeling so there are many girls who feel that way during their period and that is the typical uh, qualities of kapha prakopa okay but kapha of all the three is the best suited for fertility kapha is the best for strength and endurance so sports women who are of a kapha type are mostly who we see who take up heavy lifting or kushti or all those things that require endurance and strength and stamina are all qualities of kapha 
So when kapha is in balance, you are a very healthy and fertile woman and it's one of the best doshas to have when in balance. Uh, the way to, there is no specific rule for it because uh, kapha does not aggravate during menstruation. It's only vata and pitta. But avoiding stale food and making exercise a part of your daily routine goes a long way in uh, bringing kapha to balance. So uh, this is a very quick study that you can look up. It's an existing study, not our study, done by Dr. Pallavi Pai and others, where they put 30 women uh, who were actively menstruating women through the Rajaswala Paricharya. They told them just follow these practices for a period of, I think, six months. And they observed their problems before and after. And as you see, very obviously, there was a, dis there was a reduction in the problems. So whether it was pain in abdomen or lower backache, pain in abdomen, before they started doing these practices, 28 out of the 30 women experienced it. After they started doing it, that number reduced to just three women. Lower backache, 24 women used to suffer from it. That number came down to three. Pimples, breast tenderness, loss of appetite. Almost all the problems that women experienced when they were following these menstrual practices of Rajaswala Paricharya, there was a drastic reduction in the way they experienced menstruation. And with this, I will very quickly be open to taking questions. So if there's anything you want to ask. Now, what I presented is a very short glimpse. All of this is there in much detail in the book. In fact, what I said is largely chapter two, chapter one, two, and three, and there are 13 chapters in the book. Excellent, excellent talks, you know, Ji. And uh, I saw all, almost all the girls smiling and laughing through it. I have a lot of questions and I so wish I had heard this like 30 years back when we started because you talk about uh, your first experiences, uh, extremely, extremely negative and embarrassing and shameful experiences to begin with. But what do you do now? I'm in my late 40s. How do you heal them now? Well... That's a work that you have to do, my dear, and I'm not sure I can handhold you through that. But you have to find a way to associate something positive with your period. If it hasn't happened till now, it can happen now. Uh, one very simple thing is what rural women do is they take time off during their period. Okay, So the approach of the period, they associate it with rest, with relaxation, with freedom from all the daily chores because their husbands do all the cooking and taking care of children. That is a very natural, positive way of associating with it. So maybe you can start with a menstrual leave. And during your menstrual leave, do those things that you love doing. Okay, so start associating positive activities with your period. And slowly before you know it, the way you feel about it will naturally change. I wanted to ask about the, the, the you, you talk about anger. In some people, probably it manifests as depression. And then I read Eckhart Tolle talks about uh, the pain body. And he says that in menstruating women, since they emotionally or psychically take up the psychic pain, which has been associated with womanhood, you know, they were branded as witches and burnt. And uh, the, the shame or the stress of being a woman they take up the collective 
the pain in the collective psyche of the feminine, especially when they are menstruating. And I could re really, really relate to it. Again, uh, when you talk about Manomai Kosh and Pranamai Kosh, how to heal or how to deal with them. Uh, the uh, a corollary to that is that when I'm in a retreat or in seva or in an ashram, those days I don't experience PMS. Otherwise, I've been experiencing it for 30 years. So mm -hmm. how to deal with the emotional part of it or the pain body of emotional pain body? Well, it's not wrong that uh, when we are surrounded by the emotions of fear, of insecurity, that we will tend to experience an enhanced version of it. You know, uh, I used to work as a counselor in the women's helpline. And the cases that came to me were of domestic violence, of abuse, of all these things that happened to women. And a uh, few times when I had my period and I would sit down to counsel someone, what I felt was not just her words, but her experience. It was too much for me to take. I would cry when I would hear my clients express things. That's when I realized that, okay, I'm not going to do this when I have my period because I am absorbing too much. Your senses become so sensitive at that time that you start taking in so much of this. And that is why menstrual seclusion is so important. You know, we underestimate this thing of menstrual seclusion and we say that uh, it's, it's, it's just about, you know, backward women. No, this is a time when you need to be around with yourself and surround yourself with sattvic thoughts. So correctly you have said that when you are in a sattvic environment and an ashram, this does not affect you. So you already know the answer to the question that you're asking. You just wanted me to validate it. I, I think a lot of women have answers to the problems that they know, that they are facing. A lot of us know it. And menstruation is the time when your intuition is so sharpened whatever you knew only vaguely becomes very clear. The question is only of, are you going to follow your intuition or not? So decide to follow that. And I think you have most of the answers that you are asking me. So I had just had two more questions, but now with your last sentence, there's a third one. <laughs> the intu In my life experiences, um, uh, okay, in, in North, we don't uh, know so much about Vata and Pitta and all. I did know that I probably have a Pitta personality. Uh, in, in North, we call it Garmi and Sardi, Garam Prakriti and Sardi. So I always knew I have a heated, uh, high heat personality or uh, body. Um, and the, the things that I was told in my childhood or even in my youth when I got married, I was told garam cheese nahi khao, don't have too much non-veg, don't have a drug, don't have this thing because it reduces your fertility. But from my life experience, I can say they were wrong. Number two, the intuition became extremely, extremely powerful, even clairvoyant during my pregnancy. And I had a very, very cool, very easy pregnancy delivery, everything. Although I had multiple issues in my environment. My question is that the uh, beliefs that we talk about Pitta and all um, probably didn't apply to me or? Well, one, they are not beliefs. Okay, they're not beliefs. A lot of women go through their entire uh, menstruating years, breaking a lot of these practices and they experience the repercussions of it only during menopause. So I've had women write to me about 
very troubled menopause because every single time during the during their period they rebelled and they said uh, it's okay now if nothing affects you uh, badly i am the happiest for you i truly am but uh, i don't think you and i should talk about vata pitta and kapha without getting checked by an ayurveda physician so uh, because no one is only pitta or only vata we are all a combination of these things disease causes another state called vikriti where your prakriti could be completely changed temporary conditions emotions your practices also cause small changes within your prakriti so it will take an ayurveda physician to exactly know what your prakriti is and don't be very quick to jump to conclusions saying you did this like with the tulsi plant you know people say oh, i touched the tulsi plant nothing happened these things don't happen like this you're talking about the sukshma sharira so problems in it and changes in it manifest over a period of time if it doesn't i'm very happy for you but uh, i think it will serve us well to not be arrogant without enough knowledge about these sciences my question was not that i broke the taboos we were told uh, seclusion and all so they are not I, taboos i think my whole talk was that <laughs> yeah, these yeah, are not yeah. taboos <laughs> i did not break any of them my question was that the uh, i there was a lot of fear instilled in me about my future life if i whatever because we grew up on you know bread and eggs and then suddenly you get married and you're told oh you're doomed for life you've been eating eggs your life so but it doesn't really hold true uh, and third you talked about uh, mothers and daughters bleeding uh, together i have experienced that even roommates bleed together even friends close friends bleed together so it's not just that so i have a whatsapp group with women for whom i've done workshops and they are in tamil nadu and i'm here in bangalore and we bleed together <laughs> so uh, if all went well and if all of us lived in sync with nature where artificial light was not affecting us so much then all of us regardless of our location all of us on whom the sun falls in a particular way will bleed in sync because the sun cycle influences our inner cycles the sun cycle influences the moon cycles which in turn influences our cycles so during my travels with the women one of the villages that we visited called marahalli uttarakhanda had houses that were very spread out they were about 2 kilometers apart and uh, when our team went to these different homes and we came back one thing we realized in common was that all of these women keep track of their period by the moon so you ask them when was your last period they will all say the same thing they will all say either amavasya or they all say purnima or they'll say 3 days after amavasya 4 days and all of them bled in sync so that is a natural way in which it should be so when you and your roommate or two or three women within the same family are in close contact somewhere nature begins to start taking shape and making things happen as it should there is a book there is a chapter in this book which is entirely about mother earth cycles uh, the beauty of it is that a woman's fertility cycle is re- reflected in the fertility cycle of mother earth also and if we are in sync with it mother earth and the woman should go through the same phases together and it happens like that for a lot of women in the tribal areas we urban women have lost that connect
but uh, it's not surprising. That's how it should be. See, the way it has become is that anything natural has become surprising now. <laughs> and all the unnatural things, because they're so common, we're very easy to accept it. <laughs> very quick to accept it. I've just uh, received a question from Rahul Devanji. Uh, he's asked a question that uh, I've heard that Nadi Pariksha is a difficult art. It seems one has to meet the Ayurveda doctor at 4 a.m without even having water. It seems the Nadi Pariksha that we do during the day gives wrong indications of the three doshas. Could you please share your thoughts? Yes. Um, more than an art, it's a science. So uh, uh, when I do my Nadi Pariksha, it is early in the morning on an empty stomach. You can have water, but you ideally do it on an empty stomach because then it's like a clean slate. You know exactly what is not right. And my Ayurveda physician, Dr. Ramya Bhatt, who's based in Bangalore. So she holds your pulse, she holds your nadi and looks at you and tells you every single thing that is not working for you. Now, you don't need to tell her that I'm having indigestion or I'm having this or that. No, she will just tell you that. That's how a person who is trained and who knows how to do Nadi Pariksha can do it. Ideally done early in the morning on an empty stomach, doesn't have to be 4 a.m. and things like that, 7.30, 8 a.m. Basically, you shouldn't have had your breakfast, you can drink water. But one thing about Ayurveda is that it has now become so commercialized that don't be surprised if you find Ayurveda physicians using, using a stethoscope to check what's happening with you. And that's just not the way of Ayurveda. Um, in fact, even Prakriti Pariksha and Nadi Pariksha is a separate science. It's not there in the Ayurveda books. It's a separate science and it is a knowledge that comes down if you are from the family of Vaidyas. So when you decide to find an Ayurveda physician for yourself, rather than going to the ones that have become almost like a corporate clinic with branches and sub-branches, find that Vaidya who comes from a family of Vaidya. So the doctor I go to, her father was a Vaidya and she has inherited a lot of that and trained under him and learned from him. What we learn in the name of Ayurveda from the colleges, it gives you a degree, but that does not make you a Vaidya. So it's important that you find a Vaidya who comes from that tradition of it. And that is when all of these things will learn interpreted and known correctly. I hope that answered your question. Uh, I have uh, two questions. One is that even though, uh, I mean, people say anecdotally speaking, that, you know, this is effective and uh, that is effective in terms of traditional medicine in general. Okay. I am yet to see any kind of control experiment that is done. You know, for instance, you could take 100 women, divide them into two groups of 50 of the same uh, you know, dosha types and then do the experiment and then say, okay, this works, this doesn't work. So what happens is people adopt one of two extremes. So are you aware of any studies which do this systematically? That is the first question. Okay. And the second question relates to the institutional policies in the workplace. Now, if you say that, uh, you know, women in say working in a business have to take off for three to seven days, huh? then it means that somebody has to pick up the slack. So how does this work in, in terms of pay and equity and so on and so forth? Okay. These are my two questions. Thank you. Sure. 
So both your questions point to a bigger thing that we all need to contemplate about. The current way in which we understand both science and economy and the socioeconomic life is largely the masculine worldview. That is, it was designed by men for the bodies of men with the purpose of materialistic gains as the final ultimate goal. That is not how in our country we understood life, the purpose of life. There is dharma, artha, kama, and finally there is moksha. Okay? Now, all of these things become possible when our way of living and working starts to become in sync with that of mother nature. And in Tantra, in fact, my second talk with Sangam Talks is going to be all about Tantra and the practices of religion. In Tantra, women is the center and everyone has to follow the cycles of a woman because a woman's cycle is in tune with that of mother nature and that is the healthiest way of being. Now you first, the first question that you spoke about, which was about science and report and control studies. <clears throat> now, this is the, who said this rule? Who said that this is the framework for science and research? There's a history to that and I have mentioned that in the book. This process of scientific research that we so adhere to today was made with the with, with the idea of development that is based on destroying nature. So there is an essay written by Jayant Kalavarji, which elaborates on that and says how in the time of King Charles, somewhere in the 1600s, they set up the Royal Society of London. Robert Boyle was the head of it. And he decided that we have to exploit nature for development. But in order to do that, you have to first silence these traditional practitioners and these healers who go on about nature and natural cycles. You have to first silence them because they don't let you exploit nature. So then all of that traditional knowledge, they labeled it as pseudoscience. And Robert Boyle, being a wealthy fellow, he set up a very expensive lab in his wealthy home and invited his peers who could also afford similar laboratories and experiments. And only that, that's when the peer reviewed research that we talk about came into being. Even today with all the studies that I have done on the subject, I know that I cannot publish it in any damn journal. No one will accept it or admit it because the number one problem with medical research today is that it has no replicability. I am not saying this. Dr. Subhash Kak, I'm sure everyone knows Dr. Subhash Kak. He reached out to me and shared with me certain articles. And he himself has written about this in media, about why modern science and research based on modern science, more than 80% of it, they could not replicate. So there was this biotechnology company who took 53 of the most landmark studies on cancer and tried to replicate it. You know how many gave the same results? Only 11. Only 11. And these are landmark studies. So the thing that we are calling as scientific review is itself highly questionable. 
This is the first and foremost thing. I want all of you to do your study on this. Look up the papers, read the articles of Dr. Subhashka. Why is this not replicable? Because first and foremost, most of it, the outcome is pre-decided. Now, if I submit a paper which shows that Indian women, especially rural and tribal, have lesser health problems, no one's going to publish it. Because you are funded to present a certain perspective and your professors and the people who are funding will tell you somehow alter the numbers so that you arrive at this. Anyone who's into research knows this. There's a wonderful talk by Sarita Ji in Sangam Talks itself about research. And I know her and I have discussed this with her extensively. Please watch that to know why the thing that we call research today is the most unreliable source of proof. Having said that, how do we establish proof of knowledge for Indian systems? If you are looking at Ayurveda or Tantra or any of these systems, we have our Indian methods of pramana, of proofs of knowledge, which the texts called the darshanas talk about. So we have three or four types of pramana. We have pratyaksha pramana, that is direct experience through your senses, first and foremost thing. All the rural women and their experiences, the experiences of devotees who go to temple, we dismiss it because, oh, where are the studies? Ask all of them. They've had a pratyaksha pramana, and that is why they know it. Indian sciences accept pratyaksha pramana. Then we have anumana, inference. Then we have upamana, you can know by comparison. And if all of these things don't happen, you know by aptavachana, testimony of a reliable source, which is usually the shastras or the Vedas. Charaka introduced another method and called it yukti, which I spoke about, rational. So we have to start looking at our own frameworks for understanding our sciences. Sure, you can go ahead and do research through the modern methods, but so much of it is biased that the, by the time you put the checks and balances in place to avoid the biases, no one's going to fund that work for you. <laughs> okay, so and this I know from I'm part of the ethics committee in a very reputed uh, institute in Bangalore. And I know what happens and how we do the reviews. When there is a proposal that comes, which is about yoga, everyone's like, yeah, 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 whatever. But if it's about something based in modern science and very complex, and oh, there's so much involvement. But suddenly there are questions about yoga, which is so safe. So there's a lot more that we need to understand about research. And honestly, I do not think that modern research and their stamp is anything uh, any sort of approval for us to understand Indian sciences. Indian sciences have their own methods of validation and we need to come out with that and make that official. What was your second question? <laughs> I'm sorry. What was the second question? Yes, about work, menstrual leave, right? Okay. So uh, we have a socioeconomic system that is designed by men for men. And this greatly affects women, especially women who are in sports. You know, the events that are scheduled, it's nothing to do with the woman's cycle. It is when it is convenient for people. Now you talk about Sunday leave, right? We think we are so civilized that we take off every Sunday. How did the Sunday leave come into place? Do you know? It happened in the 1800s when the British found that Indian mills 
Indian mills were actually producing more than the mills in London because we never took time off on Sundays. We took time off during festivals, during Amavasya, during Purnima because our festivals were were representative of larger changes in the cosmos. And those were the times we needed to take off to do sadhana to offset those changes. Like Dipavali, it is the darkest night. This is the time when a lot of people go into depression. So we burst crackers, we have lights, we do the opposite to bring in that cheer like this. This is how Indians took time off. We didn't do the Sunday thing. But then they realized that our mills are producing more than their London mills. They have to take time off on Sunday to go to church. So they introduced the Factory Act, which mandated that Indian mills will also shut down on Sunday. And that is how they reduced our production. And we, like idiots, continue to follow that. Okay. So now, first and foremost, we need to start by questioning the current socioeconomic paradigm itself. Is that what is the best? Now, fine. For some reason, you think, yes, that is the best way to go about it. This menstrual leave thing, how can women get so many days off, <laughs> right? Now, you look at the productivity of a man and a woman on the, in a desk job. Women can sit and work continuously for six to eight hours. Men need a break every one or two hours. Tea, coffee, cigarettes, something. And that has to do with the way our hormones play. For a woman, in her monthly cycle, Estrogen peaks in the beginning and it is only during those three days of menstruation that estrogen is at an all-time low and she needs rest. During all the other times, her high levels of estrogen enable her to put in continuous hours of work and much more productivity. Whereas men have daily cycles of testosterone. Testosterone goes up during the day and as the day progresses, it keeps dipping. And to keep that testosterone levels high, they need stimulants. Otherwise, they should be doing yoga or sadhana, but most men don't. So you calculate menstrual leave for women. You include Sunday leave also. And you see the number of productive hours of a woman versus a man, an average woman, an average man. And you tell me, who is giving more time at work? I have done this calculation and I found that even with the menstrual leave, Women put in more hours at work because their body is such that they can contribute more. Those three days of rest will ensure that their productivity level during their remaining days actually goes up. Now, if this is still a problem, you can do what I do, which is I don't take Sundays off because there's no need for my body to take a Sunday off. In a month, I only take three days off during period. So if women take the menstrual leave and men take the Sunday leave, men are still taking more time off than women. Now, this question might seem a little out of context, but it's very relevant. And a lot of people I'm sure would want to ask and are wanting to know is that uh, you were born a Christian. Uh, you grew up in a culture which was a Christian. You visited the Christian church. I read a lot of your interviews on print. I heard your wonderful talks in Festival of Bharat. And where you said that uh, I identify myself as a Hindu and I'm an atheist because I didn't like the stifling environment that the church uh, tried to bring us up with prejudices towards Hindus. And uh, uh, when you try to disassociate from the church, uh, there's a lot of heap of uh, problems that come upon you. So uh, the kind of interest you have in, in the Indian sciences 
and uh, the way you put it across uh, touches the heart so i would just like you to go through a small brief as to what drew you towards this i knew it was through the uh, the experiments and the research that you did on menstruation but what exactly pulled you towards these ancient sciences and indian culture that is there in the beginning when i used to be asked this question why do you call yourself a hindu i used to be very diligent in answering all about <laughs> sanatan dharma and all of those things and then i realized it doesn't matter to the person asking they just looking to sensationalize and put a tag line of christian woman talking about hinduism and that is such a turn off for me that i stopped talking about it altogether see uh, hindu dharma at its core it teaches you to go beyond the external go beyond labels go beyond names go beyond birth certificates and yet when you talk about it the people listening to it only see the external such an irony right such an irony and uh, i'm uh, done taking part in those conversations where i'm invited and if there are 10 people in the room only i am asked why do you think you're a hindu the others are not asked in fact the others next to me might be only a birth certified hindu not doing anything prescribed in the books but i'll be the one who's asked why do you think you're a hindu i don't think that we need to reduce our conversations to such things we need to be able to see beyond the labels what does it matter where i was born a birth certificate does not make me who i am and the whole of sanatan dharma the whole of hinduism is about that it's about going beyond these labels so there's nothing and why how did i land up doing this because children ask me questions and as an educator when i go to schools and children ask me questions i take my role very seriously i want to be able to answer them it's really as simple as that and how do i learn about uh, the practices in hindu tradition without studying the hindu books right uh, i cannot look at the christian perspective and answer hindu traditions it's very simple so i don't think we need to try and get some answer to sensationalize the whole thing children ask me questions i didn't know the answer so i studied it in order to understand it and that's about it thank you so much rinu ji you are actually inspirational so my question is as we had certain references for the shrutra samvida the charaka samvida where there were some prescriptions of do's and don'ts so were there certain prescriptions for entering certain consecrated spaces such as temples or uh, participating in certain rituals for that concern even we can consider your book the sabri mala which you have uh, in that regard even the ritu vidya this book which we are talking about right now so ma'am were there certain prescriptions which are beneficial for the well being of that women in particular and um, over a period of time they got a little distorted and then that prescriptions which were supposed to uh, benefit the women they started uh, they worked exactly in an opposite manner so were there such incidences or it was just a improper handling of those sophisticated that's a very good question and i think it's a great note to end it uh, because you know when i was studying these practices and i was reading ayurveda texts i did not find any mention of restrictions pertaining to temples so i was surprised why are they talking about don't touch others don't eat food don't wear kajal 
but nothing about this thing of not going to the temple which is such a major practice so how come the ayurveda books are not mentioning it later when i started reading books of tantra i understood that the ayurveda texts predated the time of temples itself so that is why you don't find mention of temples and the rules pertaining to it in the ayurveda books the texts where you do find it are the books on tantra so tantra shastra and agama shastra agama shastra is the tradition and tantra is the technique so the books pertaining to these are where we have the rules pertaining to temple visits and religious uh, practices all of which i will be covering in another similar talk with sangam talks itself next month i think the date is around december 6th so this talk i have kept it to ayurveda and the next talk will be about tantra where we will take a deep dive into tantra and the practices and the especially related to menstruation with respect to religious